And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me on the phone line today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. Good to be with you, Dan. Well, Kevin, it's great to have you here. It's been a long time since you've been on the program with us. Yeah, and, uh, good to be back. You've been studying the book of Revelation for some time and preaching through that book to your congregation. And we thought, you know what? That's an interesting topic to handle on a plain answer. And that is um, just simply help us a little bit to look at the book of Revelation. Uh, You know, it's a daunting, maybe a confusing book at times. And uh, to get us started, I guess one question is, why should we read this book? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Dan. It's it's interesting. The book of Revelation is um, the only book in the New Testament that has an express promise of blessing for the reading of it. Right at the opening of the book in chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 3, John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so... Um, it's as if perhaps God knew the book was difficult and, uh, and we needed some extra encouragement. And so this is a book we ought not to shy away from because the, uh, the triune God, through his inspired word, uh, pronounces a benediction for reading it. Mm. And, uh, and so I think, I think that's very, very important. And, uh, and coupled with that is um, when you read through the book, and, and I would encourage listeners to read the whole book from beginning to end in, in light of um, the promised benediction for reading the book, um, and also in light of the fact that there's a sense in which seeing the book whole really helps um, to inspire and encourage the people of God. Uh, we can get very caught up with the details of this horn or that head or this beast or that figure and what does this all mean. But when you read it from beginning to end, uh, there's a number of things that emerge that are of great fundamental substance and are both important to the church and they encourage it. So if, if you don't get tangled up in the details, you read the book and you find yourself worshiping the, the, the Lamb and mm. cheering for the saints and detesting the beast and longing for the end and wanting to bear steadfast witness. And these things are of critical importance for the church in any age, uh, regardless of your interpretation of this or that detail. Those mm-hmm. things I just named, you know, worshiping God, um, recognizing your solidarity with the saints, hating the bestial forces however they might manifest themselves, longing for the end which has appeared in Jesus Christ and, and, and which shall come in its fullness when he comes again, and wanting to bear steadfast, faithful, truthful witness in the earth and resist the seductions of the, of the powers of the age. All of those things are things that the book of Revelation, uh, even with the different schools of interpretation, calls us to. Mm. Now, you've been preaching through the book of Revelation uh, how long now? Oh, a good while, more, more than a year. I, I'm, uh, oh, I, we, we took a break, but I'm probably 30 or 35 sermons into it, something mm-hmm. like that. I remember one other series that you did was on the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, a lot of people liked that series. We've aired um, several of those sermons over Redeemer Broadcasting. Um, the book of Revelation, I know we have a break coming up here shortly. Maybe we could ask... Uh, as you preach through the book, were there some things in there that 
that surprised you as a pastor? Um, yeah, I think there were some things that were surprising. Um, for example, the, the, the Christology, if you will, the vision, the exalted vision of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is really like nothing else in the New Testament, uh, you know, save perhaps John's other, one of John's other books, the Gospel of John. But there's, there's this extraordinary vision of the raised and transfigured Christ in the book. He appears in, in chapter 1, you know, and there's John sees him in his, uh, he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash, and the hairs of his head are white like wool, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, and his voice is like the roar of many waters. And, and um, one of the things that I've tried to communicate to our congregation is, is this your Jesus? Hmm. Is, is this, is this um, awesome figure? In, in all of his resplendent glory, the Christ that we're worshiping. And throughout Revelation, there are these repeated affirmations of the deity of Christ. He shares the throne. The Lamb shares the throne with God. The Lamb administers wrath with God. The Lamb pours out judgments with God. What God does, the Lamb does, and what the Lamb does, God does. God calls himself the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and the Lamb uses the same or absolutely equivalent titles for himself. God says, I'm the one who was and who is and who is to come, and the Lamb was, was slain, is raised, and then promises that he's coming quickly. Mm-hmm. And so it, 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 it stands out in a striking way, the exalted picture of Jesus Christ, which the book gives us. Mm. Really neat. I see we need to take a short break. Today on the phone with us is uh, Dr. Kevin Sherritt. We're talking about the book of Revelation, sometimes a rather daunting and confusing book to read. And yet, uh, like Kevin, you've pointed out, um, God promises us a special blessing as we read this book. And so we'll continue talking about it more on the other side of the break. Stay with us here on Redeemer Broadcasting. Come down, O lofty Seek thou this soul of mine And visit it with thine own ardor glowing O comforter, draw near Within my heart We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. 
Stay with us now for the second half of our program. Oh, let it freely burn Till earthly passions turn To dust and ashes in its heat consumed glorious light shine ever on my sight and clothe me round the while my path illumines and welcome back you're tuned to a plain answer here on Redeemer Broadcasting today we're talking on the phone with Dr. Kevin Sherrod And, uh, Kevin, you've been helping us uh, understand a little bit about the book of Revelation. And um, now, I didn't mention it, but you're now in the Hudson Valley, but you were pastoring a church where? Yes, Jackson, Tennessee, which is in the western half of the state. It's about 80 miles uh, from Memphis, so it's 80 miles east of Memphis. Okay. The book of Revelation... Prior to our break, I was asking you, uh, were there any things that kind of surprised you almost as you preached through the book of Revelation? Uh, you certainly have mentioned the uh, tremendously exalted picture of Jesus Christ and how it just strikes the reader. And you, you suggested to your congregation even, uh, is this your Jesus You know that, that right. you see in Revelation? Are there any other aspects that were uh, almost surprising, almost took you back as, as you read through the book? Um, yeah, I guess we could say that the emphasis, uh, really a fundamental theme in the book of bearing witness, um, which in our day sometimes gets watered down to witnessing or sharing a testimony, but in, in, in Scripture in general, and in Revelation in particular, the term is a legal term, and it has to do with, you know, truth-telling about the world and about God and about Christ before um, the hostile forces to the gospel. And, of course, the Greek word for witness um, is is the, is the word martyr, it, and of course we get the English idea of dying for the faith from it, because uh, while it's not true at the time of the New Testament, shortly after the time of the book of Revelation, so there were so many Christian martyrs that the word martyr came to mean one who dies for the faith. But in Greek, the word martyr simply means witness. Mm. So when we see Jesus in the book, for example, and he is called the faithful martyr in Greek, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. We, we, we're, we realize that witnessing, to bear witness to God, means to bear witness unto death if need be. Mm-hmm. And in, in the case of the saints in the early church, uh, often that witness did lead to death, and thus the notion of, of martyrdom being associated mm-hmm. with the church's witness. And so one of the things that stands out is the sober realism of the book. Even as the Lamb was a faithful witness and was slain and and became victorious through being slain and now is standing and alive forevermore. So the saints uh, conquer, if you will, by being conquered, slain by the beast in the book. And so the, the book of Revelation is one of the most forceful books for reminding us of the pattern of the cross 
and the following of the pattern of the Lamb and the path to what we might call Christian victory or conquest is the path of martyrdom. As, mm. the, as the North African Church Father Tertullian said in, in about 200 or so A.D., the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Church. Mm. Revelation, um, you know, we're talking about it today pretty much from a high-level point of view in a way such that um, everybody can get something out of this interview today. Um, we do recognize that there's various schools of interpretation, and uh, I'm not sure that our school will even come through. I'm not sure that I have the same school as yours even. However, um, can you at least address what are those various schools of interpretation of the book of Revelation, just to be a little more thorough? Sure. Um I think we're trying to show today that you can get some really big substantive stuff out of it no matter what school you're from, and I think that's important for the, for the listeners. But in general, um, I guess we could say there are four schools. One school is called the Preterist School, which sees much of the book as um, occurring and being fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So in, in this case, the beast would be the early Roman Empire, the whore of Babylon would be apostate Jerusalem, things like that. One of the one of the figure one of the heads of the beast would be the Roman Emperor Nero. So this school of thought tends to see not the whole book, but large portions of the book as directed toward the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy AD. Um, there's another school of thought called the Historicist School, which tends to see the book as covering the whole history of the church. And so now this school had a lot of adherence, uh, uh in the, in the Middle Ages and at the time of the Reformation and even afterwards, uh, but doesn't have many today. But this, this school of thought would see uh, various seals and trumpets and bowls and various uh, persona in, in the book of Revelation as historical figures, like maybe the rise of Islam or the medieval papacy or the Reformation. So by historicists, we mean they think the book is a prophecy about the unfolding of history from the time of Christ till the end, and that we can sort of identify historical people and events and trends in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the second school. A third school would be known as the Futurist School. The Futurists tend to see most of the book after, of course, the book of Revelation, the first two or three chapters are letters to actual seven churches in Asia Minor. After that, the Futurists tend to see much of the book as occurring in some future age, you know, at the end times, at the very end of the age before Jesus is coming. That's a popular interpretation today. And finally, we might call a fourth school the Idealist School, which says... Uh, the book of Revelation is about fundamental patterns that keep recurring in history. The church is always up against bestial forces. The church always faces dragons. The church always faces the seduction of Babylonian systems uh, of, of uh, immorality and greed. And so the, uh, the idealist school doesn't try and identify with either 70 A.D. or some specific historical thing or some particular future thing. It just tends to see basic patterns in the book. That's mm-hmm. a very, very, very quick and dirty overview of the four main schools of thought. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's helpful. And uh, like I said, we're not going to go into what school you're in or I'm in or whatever, but the fact that I'm interviewing you and I haven't even reviewed or rehearsed with you what school you're in just shows that we have a basic trust here, and I know that your scholarship is just so honest and thorough that um, you'll deal with this rightly over the air, so I I, I didn't have much of a worry. Um, But this, uh, here's a question. Um, If if I were to 
uh, embark on a study like like you've been going through uh, of the book of Revelation, maybe try to get into a little more depth, uh, what kind of skills would I need uh, in order to understand the book rightly? Excellent um, question there, Dad. Well, what, what the book of Revelation does in, in a unique way is it drives you to the Old Testament. So the first and really the decisive skill uh, and thing we need for engaging the book of Revelation, and probably the reason we stay away from it, is um, we need to know the whole Bible very well, especially the Old Testament, because Revelation is saturated in allusions to and symbolism drawn from uh, the Old Testament, Um, particularly books that we tend to shy away from, uh, books like um, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, um, Leviticus. Um, these books and others are fundamental at literally dozens and dozens, if not a hundred or two hundred places in the book of Revelation. So, you know, what to us is a bewildering array of confusing symbolism, John assumes that his readers are going to know that these sorts of bestial figures appear in the Old Testament in numerous contexts, that, that, Pharaoh is depicted as a dragon by Isaiah and all sorts of things. So John takes the Old Testament, and he's, he's, he's relying on it, but he's also creatively reworking it. And so one of the great benefits of the book of Revelation, I think, is that it, it forces us to be whole Bible Christians, to ask ourselves tough questions about how we interpret this apocalyptic symbolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the skills. But, but it repays us quite a bit, I think, because of the fact that it it ends up embedding us into um, the Old Testament. The um, book is often preached on in various churches. Um, practically speaking, um, does Revelation speak practically to the church today? Um, yes. I mean, obviously, some of the things I said at the outset, I mean, worship the Lamb, uh, yeah. cheer for the saints, detest the beast. But, but uh, we, can, we can specify a little more here. For example, it's, if, if your listeners just did nothing else, then slowly and meditatively and prayerfully read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, two chapters which have been called by some the two greatest chapters in the whole Bible. Hmm. Depictions of heavenly worship. Of, of the orderly, uh, magisterial, structured, uh, what they call antiphonal, meaning one voice does something and then there's a, a response from the rest of the, mm-hmm. the heavenly choir, of angels and heavenly beings around the throne of God in chapter 4, and, and then the Lamb appears in chapter 5 and receives the same universal homage. I mean, these two uh, scenes are just extraordinary for depicting what our worship should be like on earth as a reflection of what celestial heavenly worship is like. So in that sense, uh, Revelation shapes the public worship of the church, or should shape it, with a kind of reverence and awe and orderly God-centeredness that's profound. Um, and, and following from that, if you want another, I think, very closely related practical application, is that following after chapters 4 and 5, in chapter 6, and then again in chapter 8, 
we find that the prayers of the saints are offered up into the heavenly places, and it's in response to that prayer in the context of our heavenly worship that God unleashes and throws down judgments onto the earth in order to A, vindicate his church, vindicate the martyrs, and B, destroy the powers of evil, and C, usher in his eternal kingdom. And so Revelation centers us. It centers us not just on God in Christ, but on God in Christ in the corporate worship and prayer of the church, prayers which should be oriented toward the coming of the kingdom of God. Another thing on these lines that I asked my congregation was, how often do you pray for the vindication of the martyrs? Yes. Because the, the prayers that are being offered in heaven are for the vindication of those who've been slain, and it is those prayers which provoke God to destroy the powers that oppose the gospel and to usher in the kingdom. Mm. And so Revelation, finally, we might say here, gives us what we might call an eschatological perspective. It orients us toward the coming, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Yeah, well, that certainly shows us the importance of the prayers of God's saints, doesn't it? Amen. Um, So just that point alone, we desperately need to read this book. You know, that gets me thinking, as you talk about God unleashing and throwing down judgments in response to God's people, we've had it pretty easy here in the United States of America I'm beginning to wonder if we're going to feel some persecution before too long, but certainly in other countries— Christians have been praying for many years under terrible dictators, under terrible, bloody persecution. Do you see political implications that that the book of Revelation would have? Yeah, I mean, one is, uh, if I could rephrase all that I just said about liturgy and prayer and judgment, one fundamental political implication is that Christian confession, Christian public worship, uh, Christian prayer, the Christian hope, are essentially political realities. Mm. Uh, w- one thing the book of Revelation does is it sets up a, a kind of, if you will, political conflict between the triune God on the one hand, the dragon who is Satan, and there's a false trinity in the book, Satan, the dragon, the beast from the, from the sea, and then the beast from the land or the false prophet. And they stand over against the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, roughly speaking. Mm. And so that, that the true triune God is opposed by this parody, which in this parody, this false trinity, manifests itself in oppressive states, in perhaps the most likely the Roman Empire in the first century, but also other regimes through history, and probably again decisively and climactically at the end of history. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, the book of Revelation says uh, the Christian faith is a faith which claims total dominion for Jesus Christ. The, The empire in the book of Revelation is a false Christ. It makes the claims that Christ makes, and it seeks the worship that Christ alone should have. And so the book of Revelation is very helpful, I think, in thinking through um, politically how the church relates to the modern world. Now, here you can't draw any direct straight lines, and you, you can't make, I'm not trying to suggest that you can make policy prescriptions, but let me give you, your, your listeners, just a quick example. The, the beast is, is clearly a state power. It's a coercive, militarized state with force that kills the saints. But riding on top of the beast, 
is the is the great prostitute, the mother of all harlots, the whore of Babylon. But, and, and Babylon is clearly an economic power. She seduces by economic wealth and greed. Mm. But but she sits on top of the beast, and so you have a situation where the state is now enforcing and regulating the economy, and the economy and the lust for goods is permeating the state. Now, that's very contemporary yeah. and, and can cause us to think about how to think about our own political order. Now, um, I'm just looking at the clock here. I realize we ran out of time, basically, and uh, it's a rough place to stop. But if our listeners have uh, a question for you, I just want to insert this now that our email address to get in touch with Dr. Kevin Sherritt is through Redeemer Broadcasting. Just use this address, ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Again, ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. We'll receive your email, and we'll get that forwarded to Dr. Sherritt. Uh, Kevin, a 15-second wrap-up thought. 15-second wrap-up is read the book of Revelation, because God promises to bless you. And do not get distracted. Read it in toto. Read it from the beginning to the end. And as you do, worship the Lamb. Cheer for the saints. Detest the beast and his evil. And long for the coming of the kingdom. So that in, in underneath that longing you might remain steadfast, even as your Lord was a faithful witness. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> For Redeemer Broadcasting, I'm Dan Elmendorf. Today on the phone with us has been Dr. Kevin Sherritt. This entire episode is up on our website. Check it out at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And please join us again next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. Takes the humbler part and o'er its own shortcomings weeps with loathing. Yeah.